Hi, Tony. Uh, you're on mute, as far as I can see. Hold on, you're very loud. Oh, apologies. It's my fault. I would turn my volume down. <laughs> yeah. oh, I'm, I'm just recovering. Hi. Hi, Tony. Hello, elephants. Hope you're all well. Today's episode of Searching for Elephants finds Tom and I with Tony Langham. He, with his partner Claire Parsons, founded Lansons, a strategic reputation management consultancy, over three decades ago. Tom and him have quite a few things in common, but one very odd coinkydink is that they are both exiting their CEO roles at almost the exact same moment. So, without further ado, here's Tony, telling us about Lansons in the beginning. Well, the, the central piece is the love of my life, Claire Parsons, who is my co-founder. Um, and I can, can I have to answer this question by saying the thing that I don't say, I'm not allowed to say, that she's older than me. Um, and she was, she was more famous than I was, and she had concentrated on a particular area of financial services PR. So she had, she had much stronger client relations and clients than I did. So I was always going to have a business. I mean, my dad, um, you know, was a, a kind of working class family guy who became an accountant, and he'd always come home and say. Um, the people that do the best have the most fun and make the most money seem to be the owners in, in his in his practice that you know that, that was in Nottinghamshire. So I'd always thought, well, that sounds good to me. Um, from the moment for my first day at work as a twenty one year old, I thought that's what I'd do, and it was just a question with who and when. Then the person was sorted, and then we just needed the moment. We were going out. Claire had left to go to another company. Um, while we were sort of plotting this thing with, with others. Um, and then my company that I work for bought her company. And, you know, and one day we just, she, her, one of her clients said, well, I don't want to follow you back there. And we came home and the decision to set up Lanson's took about, about 60 seconds, I reckon. Fantastic. Fantastic. So you just got lucky. You just got lucky. You were a bit of a toy boy and you met a, a wealthy businesswoman who said, yeah, come on, I'll take you under my wing. That's, um, yeah. That's, that's, I would that's aspire it. to be a toy boy. I think it would be unfair to, unfair to say Claire was wealthy. Although, of course, another subject, being the 1980s, of course, in our kind of world, Without exception, every single person was a property owner by the age of 25. There was not an exception. Mm. <laughs> yes, not amongst the middle classes, you're right. You're right. Not uh, amongst was, anyone in market was, research or public relations, I would say. Just a, a point comes to mind. Yeah. So you and Claire have, have worked together and been married together all these years. That must uh, be a, a real challenge. Yeah. In the, in the 1980s, when we met, working at a firm called Dew Rogerson, it was sort of the days before employee, employee rights. You, you probably, you'll remember there were no employee rights, which is really strange trying to explain nowadays to people. So in our firm, if you had a relationship um, and it got in the way of anything, they would pick whichever one was most dispensable and fire them. And that was, that was the rules. Wow. Um, and, and there was no law around that. That would just happen. So therefore, of course... There were even more relationships than there are now in offices. They just all were all secret. <laughs> so having a, let's say, at least 12-month secret relationship is the, is the best thing because we're used to working and hiding our relationship. I think the, the other way around, having a relationship and saying, hey, let's take this into the workplace, I, I suspect that's impossible. Um, and that's why lots of people think, how do you do it? But if you start secret with a secret relationship um and that's your modus operandi it's easier second thing i'd say is the truth is we have had ebbs and flows so um we're we're both pretty strong people and so we probably have had 
the initial phase where Claire was um, was the leader, I'd say. Then we probably had the more the sort of other the middle phase where we were both alternative symbiotic leaders, and then we've probably had the later phase where probably I've been more the the leader. So we we've each had a bash. Very <laughs> good. Say. Very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you, if you can't yield to your your, your spouse, <laughs> then uh, well then you can't stay a spouse. You've got to be yielding. Is, yielding is the uh, yeah winning by yielding. My favourite. Phrase, winning by <laughs> okay, yeah, so exactly, exactly. You and him have many things in common, but one quite specific one, especially for for right now, is that you are both stepping aside, stepping down, sitting back. I don't know what, quite what the phrase you want to use is, and you've both brought in new CEOs. I think within a day or two of each other, it was announced anyway. Yes. We, we, well, we, the first thing we have in common is that we both founded businesses. Tony, a, a few years before me. Um, but uh, and it's those businesses that I think you still own almost all of yours, like I do, that we're now stepping back from. Yes, we still own um, around seventy percent of our business. Although um, we're actually going to change that. So we're, we're, our two-part transition is new leadership, new ownership, and we're going to transition most of our stake to colleagues and the incoming leaders. Very good. Very good. So, so essentially, it's something of a management buyout as your your well, chosen exit. We're, we're I, I need to phrase this properly. We're not really making that much money out of it because we're allowing people to pay us over a three year period, by which in which time the business should have yielded dividends to them. So we're effectively allowing them to pay us out of to buy now and pay us out of future um, profits. Very sensible. Yeah. So, um, so it it means the transition can happen quickly. And what we wanted was at this age and stage of life to for the responsibility to pass over. Uh, as well to the people who are who actually have responsibility for future growth. Excellent, excellent. I shall think long and hard about that because yeah. I um, I've got to the stage of uh, well exiting to chairman. I think that's what you're doing as well, or chair, chair. Yeah. Um, but so a new CEO is coming in, but I haven't got my head around any form of exit strategy yet. That's that's uh, that's mm. next next thinking. Hmm. Good. I'll ponder that. And we set it, and we set a level though. We're going to stay involved forever though, so we're going to keep a stake forever. But also our businesses are different, aren't they? The you, you've built a brand that, that functions wonderfully as a proper business in the real world, and we built a, a brand that needs people leading it to make it work. I guess consultancy versus trading is, yeah. is, yeah. The, is, is, is yeah, we are a, tra- a trading business that, believe me, needs a lot of people to make it work too. But, that, but I, get the, I get the essential difference. Yeah. Yeah. To, to bring you back slightly, you're both making your exit steps. Mm. Does that scare you? Yeah, you're making me worried there because because I I I've spent the last month since we announced telling people I'm not retiring because I I don't want to retire. And in fact, I think the thing that scares me would be retiring. So that's that's the the remaining fear in my in my life. Um, I'm I'm hoping that it's going to be wonderful and exciting, and I feel excited about it. And I'm going to carry on with client work and talking about what we do and our business and. And what I won't have to do are the things I've done for 32 years as a chief exec. But 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 yes, maybe I should be scared. I don't know. But the only thing that currently scares me is retirement. We're uh, we're uh, very much alike there too. <laughs> don't do that's exactly. I think the the coaching I've had is that maybe it's because of the differences in our personality. But but uh, people have from the moment I've, I raised this idea. Every advisor, professional colleague has said, uh, oh, the hardest thing on earth for a founder entrepreneur to hand over to a new CEO, you know, it always goes wrong. You never let go. You ruin their lives. You know, your ego gets in the way and all of those sort of horror stories. So I've gone through quite a long period of of, uh, 
coaching and uh, an incredibly careful selection process, which I'm sure you did too, but the, 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 um, the whole point being to try and ensure that Debbie Kennedy, who takes over in Life Search's case, doesn't uh, have a CEO who misbehaves, sorry, has an ex-CEO, has a founder who misbehaves in, in the way that uh, apparently everyone does, you know? <laughs> Do you feel absolutely sanguine this is going to be a piece of cake? Your, your new man, Gordon Tempest Hay, is going to be a, uh, just have a, a smooth ride without any pain from you? Um, I think so. I mean, all, all of what you said I, I, is the same for me, except I also had a rather short email exchange with Gordon, which basically went along the lines of, um, if you're going to sit on my shoulder, I'm not coming. Um, to which I sort of <laughs> replied, um, if you want me to sit on your shoulder, I don't want you to join. Um, so I th- <laughs> so we also had that. So, um, <laughs> which, I, which, is, which is good. I mean, I... I don't know if we're the same in this. I, I think I would say, I would admit to being a control freak, and I think control freaks have two sides, as in control freak and abdicator, whereas sort of collaborative, more totally collaborative people tend to be always collaborating. A control freaks, I think, can control or can just get out the way. So I'm ho- I'm hoping this is going to be where I get out the way. Yes, I think that's exactly what I'm hoping too. And it will be exactly what Gordon and Debbie are hoping as well. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. if all four of us want it, I'm sure we'll be able to manage it. Perhaps yeah. we should tell them that if, they, uh, if they're fed up with us, if you just say, why did you go to lunch with Tom? Or why did you go to lunch with Tony? You can talk about all your problems together. Or we can, yeah. we can uh, console each other over litres of red wine. <laughs> that's probably not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> Well, uh, hopefully it goes smoothly. You mentioned earlier that how you were decreasing your your stock, uh, minimizing risk, and that kind of goes perhaps goes hand in hand with your Lanson's corporate structure. Why why do it that way? Yeah, it's it's a good question. It does. It, it struck me when I was talking though. It does relate to types of businesses. So people businesses typically at the moment in our field. You know, they they go for about five times their profits is their sort of market value, whereas which basically means they go for the same size as their revenue, um, which means is you're better off keeping the revenue and keeping the business <laughs> for those that work in it. So, the model that really works is that the value of these of our businesses are in the profits that they make year to year and pay out. And it's bad, and they really need to be paid to the people making them. Otherwise, the whole thing doesn't hang together. So it's kind of been built into a, a people business model, I think, um, which is totally different from a, a tech business or a marketplace business or a brand business. So I think it's been built to the model, and I think that's where Lanson's and Life Search are different ends of a thing because Life Search has this incredible value in the in the market. Uh, so, so the reason for doing it is that, but but the other reason is we have thirty partners; they already own thirty percent of the business. That would probably go, we'd like that to go in the next few years to 35 to 40, and we'd like them to be owning 85% of the business, concentrated in the leading sort of four, five, six, or seven of them, and then us with a, a 15% founder stake. And it, and it feels like that's, that's just the right thing. And I'm not sure whether that makes us, it doesn't make us any more money for sure, but maybe, maybe it doesn't make us any less money either. No, I think that's, I, I really get your logic there, and, and certainly the... Uh the maintaining of a corporate culture uh, in your business is absolutely vital. But, but you just touched on it with, with your 30 partners. Now, you're, you're a limited company. No, uh, we're, a LL, we're an LLP. Lanson's is an LLP, of course it is. Yeah. And, uh, and so, right, so you've, you've created partners who, who own 
now 30% of the business and, and soon much more. So that structure is, is, yeah, it works very well for businesses where it is absolutely the people and their individual conversations and expertise and, and uh, behavior by the minute that dictates the, the, the fee revenue and the value of the business. Yeah. You know, a law firm might be similar, I guess. Yeah. So that's the value of the LLP structure. I yeah. guess we could be monumentally ego-driven, of course, because one thing Gordon has done in his past life is created bigger businesses than us, um, and he's he's joining us. So um, as he's joining Lanson's, and um, and if Lanson's gets bigger, maybe we maybe there's reflected glory in a in a in a bigger, more influential business. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, gosh, that's that's. Uh, I, I, when people say, uh, you know, why Debbie? Uh, I say because she's she built Royal London pretty much from scratch, or was on the team that did anyway, and then she turned round. If the people at LV will forgive me for that, turned round LV pretty sharpish, or was on the led the team that did that, and uh, I'm quite sure she could make life search much bigger and better than ever I could. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Okay, so I mean, is that the only thing that you think Gordon Tempest Hay will? We'll bring into the business. What was the interview process like, and, and what what shone out about him? Well, well, our, we, we, I work with the senior team at, at, at Lanson, saying, you know, I think it's time for me to step down as chief executive in over the next two years, and I think we need to we, we need to put in place succession. Between us, we decided, and they were heavily involved in this, that we'd seek an outside candidate and we'd work together on it with Claire, me, and, and Laura, Rebecca, and Stu, the, the three joint managing directors at currently at Lanson's. And when we wrote down our list of someone who could take the business on, someone who could handle clients, was a client man, because we're, we're like Tom's analogy of life of a law firm, we're, we're hands-on client people. So when someone that looked after clients, his previous clients have included RBS and Facebook um, organisations like that with very large accounts. Um, someone that had built a, a, a bigger business that we admired, and he built a business called Blue Rubicon, which we, we hugely admire mm, um, yes. in our space. And there was someone that was free to join. He had just left um, the company that bought Blue Rubicon, was serving his two-year non-competes. And to put it sort of starkly, there was a, there was a candidate list of one really that ticked all of our boxes. So we didn't we, we had Plan A, and that was it. And Plan A was him and our finance director Stu, who was also a joint managing director, had worked with him in the past, and he made the connection and and sold the idea. And then we met and got on. And hey. That's Brilliantly it. done. Brilliantly Save, done. Saving a recruitment fee. <laughs> Brilliantly done. Yes, I could have saved my recruitment fee. But uh, I went through a very proper process precisely because I was, I was so determined to be able to say that I did it all extremely thoroughly, that I searched the whole market, etc., etc. But uh, the moment I saw Debbie Kennedy's name on the list, I thought, crikey, uh, if she wants the job, she can have it. That's for sure. Um, Tony, that... that NLP structure and also the way you're exiting uh, reveals, I think, a, a leadership style and an approach to bossing people around to give it the most negative uh, <laughs> form of expression to see how you deal with that. Um, how would you characterize your uh, methodology as a leader? Well, that's a, a tough one. I mean, it's, it's over 32 years, it's definitely changed. I think it's probably. I think I see that our, our kind of organisations, people organisations, where we win our own business because we don't have a parent company giving us business and we don't have a, a sister agency giving us business. We create all of our own business. We actually have to have a mixed 
tension between people striving to perform and outperform and people feeling comfortable enough um, and happy enough in their in their skin. And we need that healthy, creative tension to be a great business. The truth probably is that in my early days, I probably created slightly too much tension, but my co-founder, Claire, probably um, balanced that with an amazing culture. I suspect in my later days, I'm probably too much on the comfortable side and not quite enough tension, which is probably why it's the right time to step away. So my leadership style has been trying to maintain that among a group of people in the business. I mean, within that... Uh, we just want people to come to work and be themselves, and and we've 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 got a culture where senior people can join, build their own sets of business. They don't have to conform to anything. There's no way of being for Lansons, um, and 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 that's the joy of and our culture is about appreciating the 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 difference in others, um, and I think that's probably probably the key. I sort of in my dark moment, sort of light moments, I, I, I kind of say we're a sort of woke wonderland in a really really good way. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Yeah. You talked about culture, but just listening to you, I don't suspect you've ever uh, listed out the values of Lanson's and what value uh, what Lanson sees as its key uh, key attributes and key values, because that would somehow homogenise the thing and, and detract from the individuality you just uh, emphasised. Well, in my job, I have observed that if I walk into a payday lender and I walk into a Swiss bank, they'll both tend to have the same values written on the wall. They both seem to have customer first, integrity, and a load of other things. So I, I have, a, have a healthy cynicism about, about writing them down. We have occasionally tried to write them down, um, and I think, genuinely, we haven't been able to agree them. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yes, it's it's an unfinished project. So maybe maybe that's something for the years beyond year thirty two of Lanson's. <laughs> well, I, there, there's no need. There's no need for a rule. I've found it enormously, uh, enormously effective in Life Search's case to to develop a, a set of values. Uh, they don't appear on any walls. Actually, they used to. Went uh, before we downsized our office a bit in Leeds uh, post COVID, but. Uh, uh, I never liked them there. No, they, they shouldn't. They should either be in people's hearts and people's minds, uh, or, or really, they're not relevant at all. They can't live on a wall. Um, but but that's that's a classic failure of corporations is to do good work and then fail to see it through. <laughs> yeah. Life Search just tries super hard every day to emphasise mm-hmm. its values and, and get people to believe that it's a it's a daily mission and, and a constant one. Mm-hmm. To uh, and I think in a job where what you're doing is financial services retail to uh, individual customers and businesses. Uh, you know, that, that level of constant quality control uh, over literally thousands of transactions a week, uh, people try and do that through compliance and, and, you know, monitoring and all that. And of course, you have to do all that. But fundamentally, the right way to do it is through culture and, and is through people going, no, no, these are the values of the business. I buy into those. I will behave well. Uh, I, I will, in our case, behave with care and honesty and openness and tolerance, and that's how I'll achieve excellence. That, that's kind of how we need to do it. But I think in a business like yours, where really the individual controls the whole client relationship uh, to a great extent, then that's such an individual bond. It has to be the individual's own values that shine through. Yeah. I mean, I'm assuming that you have the extra problem, though, of you must have people joining every week of the, of the year. You must have people joining, and during growth periods, I imagine you getting new people into your culture. Uh, I, I I always think with 
um, if I think of clients we've had, Hargreaves Lansdowne in their, uh, you know, their growth phases. I mean, the getting the Hargreaves Lansdowne culture to new people is 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 huge, and you you must have a lot of that with induction and things like that. Yes, oh no, no, it is a, it, it, that is where a, a huge effort is focused, and actually much harder now through COVID and remote working. To, to actually get it believed by people who come from more battered uh, organisations or rather less less uh, helpful, friendly, kind organisations to think actually this new employer is like that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you keep trying. It's what I always say, don't worry, you're never going to succeed in this. It's just the trying. It's the trying that does the trick. If everyone sees yeah. you trying, they, they get it in the end, even if they see you failing too. Yeah, wow. I think that's right. We have some things that I suppose are important to us. I realise we, we people have to care for their clients and people have to treat everyone with respect, whether it's the more junior people in our firm or it's journalists or it's clients. Um, and we also have a thing, uh, some professional things, like it's. It, I want us always to be clear about who we're working for. Because you can you can work in our business and sort of not reveal who you work who your clients are, and I, I don't approve of that, particularly in a, a lobbying space or something like that. Yes. So I, we have we have some sort of sets of integrity and and relationship and personal respect that that are absolutely sacrosanct and have to be in place. I might have this wrong slightly, but you Lansons does a lot of branding work for organisations. My assumption would be that the kind of the first thing you do when you do branding work with a with a company is to kind of list out what their what their five values are how does lansons do that if if you don't believe in them well, <laughs> that's a really good question i didn't say i don't think i said i don't believe in them i think i i believe in them being in as tom said being in people's kind of hearts and and, and people's souls and and the sure. fact that we've debate them mean that they're always around aren't they because so they're always around in our business it's 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 a good question because the work that we do, and I'm trying to think of something that we've just currently been working on, um, for, actually for the Cayman Islands government, I can think of some work we've done with them. It, I think a modern brand is about it's about listening a lot to, to, to what the people in the Cayman Islands think and feel and believe, and then looking a lot at what the outside world thinks, and then trying to work out what the gaps between the two are and what the desires within them are. So a, a modern brand's a different thing because you... I think you, we're, we're no longer no we we no longer can pick a set of values and advertise the hell out of them and imprint them on people. We 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 don't do that anymore. I think it's it's now about shared values and engagement and enticing people in and stories and explaining things. So I think the I think the process is a is a, is a really interesting iterative one now because people are they're they're so marketing literate. They can see what you're trying to do, you know. As in, yes, yeah, I see what you did there is a is a staple of the modern world, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The the the, the, um, the Cayman Islands, fascinating choice of customer. I mean, no one that I know hears the words Cayman Islands without thinking sleazy tax dodgers. Um, <laughs> Paradise Papers. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yes, especially with the new what was the the new papers just published? Paradise Papers. Paradise Papers. Yeah. yeah so there we are. Was that mm. so? So they've hired you to improve their image, or is that oversimplification? Uh, what? How would? What would you yeah, do for I've, the Cayman Islands government? Well, I've I've worked in the British off, offshore space for for a long time, actually, since two thousand and four. Um, no, I I don't see the world as black and white. Um, the the the. The world's been storified in lots of ways, and one of the ways it's been storified is that the financial centres of the world 
want to make it look as if the offshore centres of the world are bad and the financial centres of the world, like London and New York, are 100% good. Um, and that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, right. it's, it's not true. Um, and some of the war, I mean, the war that's waged against the British, in particular, which came and, of course, is the British overseas territories, is led by the European Union and the OECD. So there is a, there's a very clear economic agenda that France and Germany um, want to attack um, Britain's influence throughout the world. Um, and one of the ways they do it is to attack the, the financial centres that you know American hedge funds use, the Cayman Islands, the world's reinsurance companies use Bermuda, um, the private banks of the world and investment companies of Europe use Jersey, um, and other countries are jealous. And... Um, you know, some of the biggest money laundering scandals in the world happened through, um, you know, happened through Sweden and Denmark. Um, but nobody wants to hear that because they don't think that. So um, they tend to shut their ears when, when, when those scandals happen, and they open their ears when, when things fit their story. So I, in my business, I've, um, I might have said it's a woke wonderland internally, but it's not a woke wonderland externally. I'm, I'm very happy to go into bat for misunderstood um, and misrepresented organisations, and I don't do it if I don't think it's right. Um, but but I'd, I'm really happy to do it if I think they have a case and I, and I believe they have a fair right to a hearing. Gosh, Teddy, I, uh, if I was a, if I was any one of them, I would hire you on the spot after <laughs> after that three minutes. That was uh, that was extremely persuasive stuff. You are very good at your job. Very good at your job. Yeah. Okay, I'm a fan of the Cayman Islands. Just like that, that happened. But, <laughs> but then, so what morally? What what does make it acceptable? Or not? Just because I know a lot of people will be listening to this, going, he'll be paid, and well, his company will receive a huge amount of money to do the work that they're doing. So it's so what you're actually saying. What what makes what would put a, a, exactly a, yeah, a, a, a government beyond, beyond the pale of Lancers? Yeah. So it's a, it's a easy question. So um, so first thing. We're open about everyone we work for. Go to the website, you can see who we work for. And if we're open about it, that means we all have to be happy about it. That means I'm pleased to work for everyone that Lansons works for. So that's a, that's a thing. Everyone in Lansons has the right to say they don't want to work on an individual client. So if someone at Lanson says, I don't want to work in the offshore space, then they don't work in the offshore space. So, um, and it's, 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 it's really clear. Um, for me, we won't work. We won't misrep- we, we won't work for people that misrepresent themselves that we know misrepresent themselves, and we won't work for people that that are trying to mislead people, and we won't work for for bad people. So they're all they're they're difficult things to judge in this world. But we but we won't do that. So if we don't if we don't want to work for them, we don't work for them. It's a straightforward black and white thing, but it's very hard sometimes to to, to work out. You know, the whole world at the moment of a VSG. I mean, you, you know, we, we will be confronted, you know, two cases, you know, steel manufacturing and shipping would be really interesting cases, wouldn't they? Because steel manufacturing and shipping are not going to reduce their emissions by 50% by 2030, although all the good companies in both fields should be trying to be um, net zero by 2050. But the world has no option but to use steel in lots of the things it does, and it pretty much has no option but to use coal in the process of making steel. So the world doesn't have a doesn't have an option in what it does. A bit like, you know, unless we're going to stop mobile phones, you know, we don't have an option but to mine more gold and mine more palladium. Um, so so we don't have any options. So 
and you know the ships that are going to be net zero haven't yet been invented so you can't so and they last 25 years so so a shipping company can't do it by 2030 but it can by 2050 if new ships are invented so in those areas you have to say are we working for the best companies because humanity needs these companies and are we working for the companies that are striving to be the best and and that would be the that would be my line um, oh, but but we're advocates, so we're not we're not barristers in that we'd work for anyone. Everyone deserves a right to a hearing. Everyone does deserve a right to a hearing, but we wouldn't we wouldn't work for all of them. Let's go to horse racing now. Come I, on. I was thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> Let's go to horse racing. Well, I haven't asked. I mean, I'm, I didn't. I didn't know if you're asking me or I'm asking because normally when I talk to Tom, I ask Tom a lot of questions. But it's gone that you're asking me. I don't know if I'm if I'm supposed to be the one asked or if I'm go also on. asking. I don't. I don't know. Go well, on, please. If you, well, well, no. I, I mean, I, I, I want. I'd love some of the questions you've asked of me. So, how would you describe your leadership style? Because, because you're, you're. I mean, very clearly in our industry, uh, I, I have no fear of contradiction to say that you're a charismatic figure. So, how, how would you describe your leadership style? Uh, very instinctive, I think. Uh, but as you, you rightly pointed out, your instincts do change. I think it's just part of growing up. Uh, so certainly when I started, I was very driven, very blunt, very assertive. But I managed to have enough, you said charisma, enough about me to get them to stick with me. Uh, and so I haven't really suffered any leadership churn uh, over my 40 years now, I suppose, of, of, well, starting with just me in the business and now about 530 of us. But over that time, I've become a lot more consultative uh, and a lot more collegiate and a lot kinder. Uh, and a lot more uh, focused on being overtly caring, really, uh, so that the, the company can see that the boss, the founder, the owner cares uh, and isn't really in it just for the money. Um, and that, that shift actually started occurring in my mid-twenties when my sister gave me, she was a, a, a nurse, or she just retired as a nurse just recently, but she gave me a short, sharp lecture on how... Uh, uh, money had to be a byproduct of doing the right things, not anything else. Uh, and I might have been 23 when she gave me that, so that really was very young. But that did set me off on, a, on, a, on an angle of uh, trying to uh, build a business that was first up a, a good thing for customers, uh, and then second up might make money. Because I figured if you did the first for long enough, you would obviously get the second right eventually. Uh, and remember, Life Search started in '98 when. Uh, retail banks uh, ruled the uh, financial services world pretty much with huge tied agency forces selling, um, well, I hope my banking customers will forgive me, but selling an absolute load of crap. And uh, 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 the Life Search's mission was to, to, to improve that world. And uh, yeah, we, we, we haven't done too badly on it. So I've become a much nicer leader over time. I think that is the honest truth of it and a much kinder person uh, and, and leader over time. And, and that's still there. But on the other hand, those people who I don't agree with in the industry will find that same bullish, abrasive and assertive person nagging them to, uh, to do things better or to stop doing the, the harm that I think they're doing all the time. So it still, still remains part of the makeup. Yeah, one, um, one thing that, I don't know if you feel this, Tom, one thing that I, I was at... Um, a financial services forum event last week and we were and everyone talked as we've done about effectively nicer leadership and somebody said well when things are going wrong you need to change tack and you need the unreasonable person in the room who doesn't agree with everybody else because things are going in a direction and the direction needs to change it has set me thinking of of <laughs> 
if I needed to be the unreasonable person anymore, do I still have it in me to be the unreasonable person when it's required? And I actually don't know the answer. I don't know if you, you feel you do. But, but Or do you agree that I think there's a time for the unreasonable person and who just says, no, things need to change? And I, I don't know if I still have that in me. No, I, I really, I, I'm very, I know exactly where I am on this because I, I used to think that being unreasonable was a key part of leadership. No, 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 we can do this in three days. I know you think it takes six weeks. It doesn't. We'll do it in three. Get on and do it in three. And lo and behold, we, we got it done in five. And, you know, everyone had heart attacks, but we got there. So being, un, being unreasonable, I, I always go back to sort of military, military analogies because just, that's just my age and, uh, you know, my upbringing. But the, uh, you can do anything uh, if you really set your mind and go for it. So being unreasonable is, is a really good leadership tactic from time to time. But where I'm confident is that I don't have it anymore. No, uh, the, the journey to niceness and age and being more comfortably off and that sort of stuff has definitely softened that in me. And I do think that uh, one of the reasons, one of the things I'm hoping Debbie will bring back into life search is a, a professional unreasonableness, not a, not, a, not a silly one, not a madness, but just a sort of, no, I'm sorry, this is what has to be done because she has done that many times in her career. She is a very strong and driven person. So uh, with a bit of luck, uh, yeah, professional unreasonableness is not really unreasonableness at all, is it? It's just making sure that the right thing is done. Yeah despite the fact it might not be the, uh, the consensus. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I would, I would add in that you can be unreasonable and yet still be caring. Yes, yeah. yes. Now, that's enough questions from you, Tony. What about, uh, <laughs> what about horse racing? <laughs> okay, well, for, for six years, I, I'm, a, I'm a near lifelong horse racing fan, but for six years now, I've been chairman of Great British Racing, the marketing body for British horse racing and the chairman of British Champion Series, which owns Britain's richest race day and, and quite possibly the greatest race day in the world. Yes, yeah, so probably uh, alongside executive chairman, sports administrator is probably another another word, isn't it, that, that's low down the list of um, societal benefit benefactors. But but yes, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the world of sports administration, I guess. Fantastic. Sports governance, anyway. Fantastic. And your lifelong fan of horse racing is just because you... you always think you're right and you'd like a gamble to prove that? Or um, was it deeper I, than I, that? I used to gamble. Um, I'm from a working class family in Nottingham, so I used to gamble. Um, and gamble to me means kind of betting where the winning or the losing means something to you. So I'm now totally against gambling, um, but I still have a bet. Um, so I, I no longer gamble. I've gambled enough in business life <laughs> to, to never need to never need to gamble in any other in any other environment. So so business life has been a set of gambles, and and I don't gamble. And and I think um, I I personally prefer the term flutter um, for, 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 for people having a bet um, because obviously, you know, we've talked about areas um, of life that are... It's really interesting, actually. I found myself saying that, you know, we don't all want to live in a bedroom because we're so scared of taking risks. I mean, horse racing, like lots of other things, is part of going for it and being exciting and being thrilling and taking risks. And for people who want to get out there and feel a physical thrill and um and and that's that goes to the people that own race horses because they they take the same kind of risk with 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 their money the people that are part of the sport you know the owners trainers and particularly the jockeys um and the fans get that visceral sense of thrill and excitement and it's really it to me in my mind it's part of saying you know we we want the world to still have human thrill don't we we don't want yes. the world to be a oh my god 
if, if no one can ever take a risk ever again because it, it just really wouldn't be a world worth living in. You're absolutely right, absolutely right. And horse racing, increasingly I find as I get older, I, uh, I get attracted to it more and more. Um, and I like your idea of a flutter because if I have a 20 quid bet on a race and lose, you know, the, the, the family's not going to suffer. Yeah. Uh, but but if someone else uh, less fortunate or less old or whatever uh, has that bet, then maybe it does actually affect the weekly income, and then that's that is a horrible thing and sh- shouldn't be encouraged. Um, uh, but uh, but the flutter is uh, yeah that that gives you enormous pleasure for well a reasonable cost, yeah, an affordable cost. But but it's a great world, and and I would um, as a, an ad- advocate, and I think you're the same, Tom. I mean, I would hugely advocate going into a different world. Um, and for me, I've spent a lot of time in, in the public relations, I could now say reputation management world, and I spent a fair bit of time in the financial services world to spend um, one day a week in the horse racing world. It's been fabulous. <laughs> it's just been like, mm. it's been, it's, it, I mean, I don't know if it elong- it's elongated my life, but it's made it feel like I'm living, I'm living a fuller life. <laughs> mm, wonderful, wonderful. I think maybe one of the, the key differences between say a a formula 1 uh and and a horse racing is that there are there are incidents where uh an animal who hasn't had a choice um might might die because of the action i, I know exactly what you mean about taking risk i i really want to go skydiving but i i feel where a lot of people would would argue with you is where that risk becomes not just about yourself and uh, and perhaps the other human beings around you, but with something that doesn't have the same consciousness level. Mm. Well, I mean, I would say that the 14,000 thoroughbred racehorses in Britain only exist because they've been bred to work and they've been bred to race. They wouldn't exist otherwise. So, th- so they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't be here. So they exist for that purpose. If you... I think people relate to dogs more easily, don't they? People say, "Oh, I've got a working lab or a working cocker." You wouldn't have you wouldn't have a working lab if you never left the house and never took it for a walk and just kept it in your kitchen. Um, these are these are working animals, so they're bred to work and they and they love their work. And when a storm hits Britain um, and blows in and rains horizontally at 100 miles an hour, you know the pony of your friend is probably out in a field. Um, a thoroughbred racehorse is inside with the heating on um, and the best meal in the world and hay and it probably has a staff ratio of about one to one to two or three horses and it has about ten people around it that absolutely love it and g- give it the best life in the world so I mean, if, if, if six years in racing has convinced me of one thing, it's that the people in racing love their horses. I mean, you know, we, no, we ran national, yeah, that. I mean, yeah. And, no, and those horses are here to work, you know, and, and the ones that don't like it tend not to be racing. They tend to be, they, we try and find other lives for them because if they don't like racing, they don't win and therefore they're not in racing. And then we try and find homes for all of them now with other families and we, you know, some of them going to dressage, some of them find other homes. Sure. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sold on the idea that racing loves its animals. Well, I'm also sold on the fact, because I see it whenever I go to Cheltenham, which is my, my big outing of the year, uh, and always has been really for many years. Uh, mm. When you see a horse at the end of a race, that they are as 
excited and thrilled, uh, whether they've won or not. You know, you can, you can feel that horse's emotion. You really can. They aren't in any way going, oh, no, another day at the office. Mm. They are uh, hyped up and excited and, and loving it, uh, insofar as any human can tell what a horse thinks. That, that is totally clear to me. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that it kind of takes me through to, to media, because I think what you're expressing here, and I'm very grateful to you for that, is, is very complex. You're, you're going into complex, complex areas and, and discussing complex opinions, whereas perhaps that's missing from a lot of the, the media that we consume today. I've just asked you a very leading question, but would you, uh, would you agree? Nuance, I think, is what you're talking about. The arguments yeah. you've just made in both cases are nuanced arguments. You can't do nuance on Twitter very easily. Um, uh, so, and indeed, almost all modern communications is, is bite-sized. Uh, a long read used to be called a newspaper article in my day, but now it's a very specific thing that you've meant to sit down and focus on. Uh, it, it's all done in, in relatively few characters. And, and you're on, on social media a lot, personally. Um, how does one get around that, uh, that lack of nuance uh, when, when well, your business is nuanced? So, I, I, I agree with the premise that... that things are often very simplistic and therefore very often wrong. Debates tend to acquire narratives and stories, don't they? And some of those go in a, in a wrong direction. And I'm quite happy to be part of saying, well, you, you sort of have two stories if you're on the wrong end of one of these narratives. Like uh, you mentioned um, the Cayman Islands, that would be true for, for probably for Bermuda as well. If you're on the wrong end of one of these stories, what can you do? Well, amongst the people that make the rules of the world, you probably can have the nuanced debate inside the OECD and the United Nations and the British Cabinet and all of those kind of things. Although they're obviously also influenced by the simplistic debate. So you should at least have two sides to the argument in those places. In the wider world, the only way to change a narrative is probably to do really big things that are going to make people think again and look again. So yes, yeah, I, 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 I'm an advocate of, of some people and it's much easier to do it than individual, isn't it? You will often see an individual do that, you know, heart-rending interview that they send to their fans, um, uh, which is them speaking. And, and, and you can do something like that to, to change narratives. And, and, and the world isn't always right, is it? That's true. Um, you know, not all the people that everyone thinks are good are actually good when you meet them and etc. etc. And not all the companies that say they do no evil um, actually do no evil in our world. Very true. Good. Thank you so much. Teddy, that, that felt wonderful to me. I don't know wow. who would be interested in you and me, but <laughs> if, if they are, we've given them good value, I think. We really have. <laughs> and that's your lot, folks. Tony, thank you for being confident enough to go to those complex places. I think if we were all a little more willing to openly discuss nuance, this world would be a very, very different place. Next week, I'll be talking to Mark Twigg, He's the executive director at Cicero AMO. We'll be talking to him about lots of stuff. Lobbying, the good, the bad, and the just plain ugly. And how, while the world is becoming a more diverse and accepting place, complacency is to be guarded against. All that next week on Searching for Elephants. And if you haven't already, then please, you already know what I'm going to say, don't you? Well, go on then, do it. Cheers, everyone. <laughs>